Section 14 of The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Feuerbach. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Feuerbach. Translated from the German by Marion Evans. Chapter 10 The Mystery of Providence and creation out of nothing creation is the spoken word of god the creative cosmogonic fiat is a tacit word identical with the thought to speak is an act of will thus creation is a product of the will as in the word of god man affirms the divinity of the human word so in creation he affirms the divinity of the will not however the will of the reason but the will of the imagination the absolutely subjective unlimited will the culminating point of the principle of subjectivity is creation out of nothing as the eternity of the world or of matter imports nothing further than the essentiality of matter so the creation of the world out of nothing imports simply the non-essentiality the nothingness of the world the commencement of a thing is immediately connected in idea if not in time with its end lightly come lightly go the will has called it into existence the will calls it back again into nothing when the time is indifferent its existence or non-existence depends only on the will but this will is not its own will not only because a thing cannot will its non-existence but for the prior reason that the world is itself destitute of will thus the nothingness of the world expresses the power of the will the will that it should exist is at the same time the will, at least the possible will, that it should not exist. The existence of the world is therefore a momentary, arbitrary, unreliable, i.e. unreal, existence. Creation out of nothing is the highest expression of omnipotence. But omnipotence is nothing else than subjectivity exempting itself from all objective conditions and limitations and consecrating this exemption as the highest power and reality nothing else than the ability to posit everything real as unreal everything conceivable as possible nothing else than the power of the imagination or of the will as identical with the imagination the power of self-will the strongest and most characteristic expression of the subjective arbitrariness is it has pleased the phrase it has pleased god to call the world of bodies and spirits into existence is the most undeniable proof that individual subjectivity individual arbitrariness is regarded as the highest essence the omnipotent world principle on this ground creation out of nothing as a work of the almighty will falls into the same category with miracle or rather it is the first miracle not only in time but in rank also 
the principle of which all further miracles are the spontaneous result. The proof of this is history itself. All miracles have been vindicated, explained, and illustrated by appeal to the omnipotence which created the world out of nothing. Why should not he who made the world out of nothing make wine out of water, bring human speech from the mouth of an ass, and charm water out of a rock? But miracle is, as we shall see further on, only a product and object of the imagination, and hence creation out of nothing, as the primitive miracle is of the same character. For this reason, the doctrine of creation out of nothing has been pronounced a supernatural one, to which reason of itself could not have attained and in proof of this appeal has been made to the fact that the pagan philosophers represented the world to have been formed by the divine reason out of already existing matter but this supernatural principle is no other than the principle of subjectivity which in christianity exalted itself to an unlimited universal monarchy whereas the ancient philosophers were not subjective enough to regard the absolutely subjective being as the exclusively absolute being, because they limited subjectivity by the contemplation of the world, or reality, because to them the world was a truth. Creation out of nothing, as identical with miracle, is one with providence, for the idea of providence originally in its true religious significance, in which it is not yet infringed upon and limited by the unbelieving understanding, is one with the idea of miracle. The proof of providence is miracle. Belief in providence is belief in a power to which all things stand at command to be used according to its pleasure, in opposition to which all the power of reality is nothing. Providence cancels the laws of nature. It interrupts the course of necessity, the iron bond which inevitably binds effects to causes. In short, it is the same unlimited, all-powerful will that called the world into existence out of nothing. Miracle is a creatio ex nihilo. He who turns water into wine makes wine out of nothing, for the constituents of wine are not found in water. Otherwise, the production of wine would not be a miraculous, but a natural act. The only attestation, the only proof of providence, is miracle. Thus providence is an expression of the same idea as creation out of nothing. Creation out of nothing can only be understood and explained in connection with providence, for miracle properly implies nothing more than that the miracle worker is the same as he who brought forth all things by his mere will, God the Creator. But providence has relation essentially to man. It is for man's sake that providence makes of things whatever it pleases. It is for man's sake that it supersedes the authority and reality of a law, otherwise omnipotent. The admiration of providence in nature, 
especially in the animal kingdom, is nothing else than an admiration of nature, and therefore belongs merely to naturalism, though to a religious naturalism. For in nature is revealed only natural, not divine providence, not providence as it is an object to religion. Religious providence reveals itself only in miracles, especially in the miracle of the Incarnation, the central point of the religion. But we nowhere read that God, for the sake of brutes, became a brute. The very idea of this in the eyes of religion, impious and ungodly. Or that God ever performed a miracle for the sake of animals or plants. On the contrary, we read that a poor fig tree, because it bore no fruit at a time when it could not bear it, was cursed purely in order to give men an example of the power of faith over nature. And again, that when the tormenting devils were driven out of men, they were driven into brutes. It is true, we also read, No sparrow falls to the ground without your father. But these sparrows have no more worth and importance than the hairs on the head of a man, which are all numbered. Apart from instinct, the brute has no other guardian spirit, no other providence, than its senses or its organs in general. A bird which loses its eyes has lost its guardian angel. It necessarily goes to destruction if no miracle happens. We read indeed that a raven brought food to the prophet Elijah, but not, at least to my knowledge, that an animal was supported by other than natural means. But if a man believes that he also has no other providence than the powers of his race, his senses and understanding, he is in the eyes of religion and of all those who speak the language of religion an irreligious man, because he believes only in natural providence, and a natural providence is in the eyes of religion as good as none. Hence providence has relation essentially to men and even among men, only to the religious. God is the Savior of all men, but especially of them that believe. It belongs, like religion, only to men. It is intended to express the essential distinction of man from the brute, to rescue man from the tyranny of the forces of nature. Jonah in the whale, Daniel in the den of lions, are examples of the manner in which providence distinguishes religious men from brutes. If, therefore, the providence which manifests itself in the organs with which animals catch and devour their prey, and which is so greatly admired by Christian naturalists, is a truth, the providence of the Bible, the providence of religion, is a falsehood and vice versa. What pitiable and at the same time ludicrous hypocrisy is the attempt to do homage to both, to nature and the Bible at once? How does nature contradict the Bible? How does the Bible contradict nature? The God of nature reveals himself by giving to the lion strength and appropriate organs in order that, for the preservation of his life, he may, in case of necessity, kill and devour even a human being. The God of the Bible reveals himself by interposing his own aid 
to rescue the human being from the jaws of the lion. Providence is a privilege of man. It expresses the value of man in distinction from other natural beings and things. It exempts him from the connection of the universe. Providence is the conviction of man of the infinite value of his existence, a conviction in which he renounces faith in the reality of external things. It is the idealism of religion. Faith in providence is therefore identical with faith in personal immortality, save only that in the latter the infinite value of existence is expressed in relation to time as infinite duration. He who prefers no special claims, who is indifferent about himself, who identifies himself with the world, who sees himself as a part merged in the whole, such a one believes in no providence, i.e. in no special providence, but only special providence is providence in the sense of religion. Faith in providence is faith in one's own worth, the faith of man in himself. Hence, the beneficent consequences of this faith, but hence also false humility, religious arrogance, which, it is true, does not rely on itself, but only because it commits the care of itself to the blessed God. God concerns himself about me. He has in view my happiness, my salvation. He wills that I shall be blessed. But that is my will also. Thus, my interest is God's interest. My own will is God's will. My own aim is God's aim. God's love for me is nothing else than my self-love deified. Thus, when I believe in providence, in what do I believe? But in the divine reality and significance of my own being. But where providence is believed in, belief in God is made dependent on belief in providence. He who denies that there is a providence denies that there is a God. Or, what is the same thing, that God is God. For a God who is not the providence of man is a contemptible God, a God who is wanting in the divinest, most adorable attribute. Consequently, the belief in God is nothing but the belief in human dignity, the belief in the absolute reality and significance of human nature. But belief in a religious providence is a belief in creation out of nothing, and vice versa. The latter, therefore, can have no other significance than that of providence as just developed, and it has actually no other. Religion sufficiently expresses this by making man the end of creation. All things exist, not for their own sake, but for the sake of man. He who, like the pious Christian naturalist, pronounces this to be pride, declares Christianity itself to be pride. For to say that the material world exists for the sake of man implies infinitely less than to say that God, or at least if we follow Paul, a being who is almost God, scarcely to be distinguished from God, becomes man for the sake of men. But if a man is the end of creation, he is also the true cause of creation, for the end is the principle 
of action. The distinction between man as the end of creation and man as its cause is only that the cause is the latent inner man, the essential man, whereas the end is the self-evident empirical individual man. That man recognizes himself as the end of creation, but not as the cause, because he distinguishes the cause, the essence, from himself as another personal being. But this other being, this creative principle, is in fact nothing else than his subjective nature, separated from the limits of individuality and materiality, i.e. of objectivity, unlimited will, personality posited out of all connection with the world, which by creation, i.e. the positing of the world, of objectivity, of another, as a dependent, finite, non-essential existence, gives itself the certainty of its exclusive reality. The point in question in the creation is not the truth and reality of the world, but the truth and reality of personality, of subjectivity in distinction from the world. The point in question is the personality of God. But the personality of God is the personality of man freed from all the conditions and limitations of nature. Hence the fervent interest in the creation, the horror of all pantheistic cosmogenies. The creation, like the idea of a personal God in general, is not a scientific, but a personal matter, not an object of the free intelligence, but of the feelings. For the point on which it hinges is only the guarantee, the last conceivable proof and demonstration of personality or subjectivity as an essence quite apart, having nothing in common with nature, a supra and extra mundane entity. Man distinguishes himself from nature. This distinction of his is his God. The distinguishing of God from nature is nothing else than the distinguishing of man from nature. The antithesis of pantheism and personalism resolves itself into the question, is the nature of man transcendental or imminent, supranaturalistic or naturalistic? The speculations and controversies concerning the personality or the impersonality of God are therefore fruitless, idle, uncritical, and odious. For the speculatists, especially those who maintain the personality, do not call the thing by the right name. They put the light under a bushel. While they in truth speculate only concerning themselves, only in the interest of their own instinct of self-preservation, they yet will not allow that they are splitting their brains only about themselves. They speculate under the delusion that they are searching out the mysteries of another being. Pantheism identifies man with nature, whether with its visible appearance or its abstract essence. Personalism isolates, separates him from nature, converts him from a part into the whole, into an absolute essence by himself. This is the distinction. If, therefore, you would be clear on these subjects, exchange your mystical, perverted anthropology, which you call theology, 
for real anthropology and speculate in the light of consciousness and nature concerning the difference or the identity of the human essence with the essence of nature you yourselves admit that the essence of the pantheistical god is nothing but the essence of nature why then will you only see the mote in the eyes of your opponents and not observe the very obvious beam in your own eyes why make yourselves an exception to a universally valid law admit that your personal god is nothing else than your own personal nature that while you believe in and construct your supra and extra-natural god you believe in and construct nothing else than the supra and extra-naturalism of your own self in the creation as everywhere else the true principle is concealed by the intermingling of universal metaphysical and even pantheistic definitions but one need only be attentive to the closer definitions to convince oneself that the true principle of creation is the self-affirmation of subjectivity in distinction from nature god produces the world outside himself at first it is only an idea a plan a resolve now it becomes an act and therewith it steps forth out of god as a distinct and relatively at least a self-subsistent object but just so subjectivity in general which distinguishes itself from the world which takes itself for an essence distinct from the world posits the world out of itself as a separate existence indeed this positing out of self and the distinguishing of self is one act when therefore the world is posited outside of god god is posited by himself is distinguished from the world what else then is god but your subjective nature when the world is separated from it it is true that when astute reflection intervenes the distinction between extra and intra is disavowed as a finite and human distinction but the disavowal by the understanding which in relation to religion is pure misunderstanding no credit is due if it is meant seriously it destroys the foundation of the religious consciousness it does away with the possibility the very principle of the creation for this rests solely on the reality of the above-mentioned distinction moreover the effect of the creation all its majesty for the feelings and the imagination is quite lost if the production of the world out of god is not taken in the real sense what is it to make to create to produce but to make that which in the first instance is only subjective and so far invisible non-existent into something objective perceptible so that other beings besides me may know and enjoy it and thus to put something out of myself to make it distinct from myself where there is no reality or possibility of an existence external to me there can be no question of making or creating god is eternal but the world had a commencement god was when as yet the world was not god is invisible 
not cognizable by the senses, but the world is visible, palpable, material, and therefore outside of God. For how can the material as such, body, matter, be in God? The world exists outside of God, in the same sense in which a tree, an animal, the world in general, exists outside of my conception, outside of myself, in an existence distinct from subjectivity. Hence only when such an external existence is admitted, as it was by the older philosophers and theologians, have we the genuine unmixed doctrine of the religious consciousness. The speculative theologians and philosophers of modern times, on the contrary, foist in all sorts of pantheistic definitions, although they deny the principle of pantheism. And the result of this process is simply an absolutely self-contradictory, insupportable fabrication of their own. Thus the creation of the world expresses nothing else than subjectivity, assuring itself of its own reality and infinity through the consciousness that the world is created, is a product of will, i.e. a dependent, powerless, unsubstantial existence. The nothing out of which the world was produced is a still inherent nothingness. When thou sayest the world was made out of nothing, thou conceivest the world itself as nothing. Thou clearest away from thy head all the limits to thy imagination, to thy feelings, to thy will, for the world is the limitation of thy will, of thy desire. The world alone obstructs thy soul. It alone is the wall of separation between thee and God, thy beatified, perfected nature. Thus, subjectively, thou annihilatest the world. Thou thinkest God by himself, i.e., absolutely unlimited subjectivity, the subjectivity or soul which enjoys itself alone, which needs not the world, which knows nothing of the painful bonds of matter. In the inmost depths of thy soul thou wouldst rather there were no world, for where the world is, there is matter, and where there is matter there is weight and resistance, space and time, limitation and necessity. Nevertheless, there is a world. There is matter. How dost thou escape from the dilemma of this contradiction? How dost thou expel the world from thy consciousness, that it may not disturb thee in the beatitude of the unlimited soul? Only by making the world itself a product of will, by giving it an arbitrary existence always hovering between existence and non-existence, always awaiting its annihilation. Certainly the act of creation does not suffice to explain the existence of the world or matter. The two are not separable. But it is a total misconception to demand this of it, for the fundamental idea of the creation is this. There is to be no world, no matter, and hence its end is daily looked forward to with longing. The world, in its truth, does not here exist at all. It is regarded only as the obstruction, the limitation of subjectivity. How could the world, in its truth and reality, be deduced 
from a principle which denies the world. In order to recognize the above-developed significance of the creation as the true one, it is only necessary seriously to consider the fact that the chief point in the creation is not the production of earth and water, plants and animals, for which indeed there is no God, but the production of personal beings, of spirits according to the ordinary phrase. God is the idea of personality as itself a person, subjectivity existing in itself apart from the world, existing for self alone, without wants, posited as absolute existence, the me without a thee. But as the absolute existence for self alone contradicts the idea of true life, the idea of love, as self-consciousness is essentially united with the consciousness of a thee, as solitude cannot, at least in perpetuity, preserve itself from tedium and uniformity, thought immediately proceeds from the divine being to other conscious beings and expands the idea of a personality which was at first condensed in one being to a plurality of persons. If the person is conceived physically as a real man, in which form he is a being with wants, he appears first at the end of the physical world when the conditions of his existence are present, as the goal of creation. If, on the other hand, man is conceived abstractly as a person, as is the case in religious speculation, this circuit is dispensed with, and the task is the direct deduction of the person, i.e. the self-demonstration, the ultimate self-verification of the human personality. It is true that the divine personality is distinguished in every possible way from the human in order to veil their identity. But these distinctions are either purely fantastic, or they are mere assertions, devices which exhibit the invalidity of the attempted deduction. All positive grounds of the creation reduce themselves only to the conditions, to the grounds, which urge upon the me the consciousness of the necessity of another personal being. Speculate as much as you will, you will never derive your personality from God. If you have not beforehand introduced it, if God himself be not already the idea of your personality, your own subjective nature. End of section 14